Okay, so we've covered quite a few things. Before we move into some more of the specific things about the tabernacle, I do want to mention uh, something to do with the coverings, and it goes back to what we kind of closed on, thinking about Christ. One of the other lessons that we learn. So remember that this part of the tabernacle here, 45 feet long, 15 feet high. By the way, this is just something to throw out there for you thinking. As I said, math is not my strong suit. But if this particular section here was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet high, what do we call that? A cube, yes, a cube. Now, the only thing that I find, it's not the only thing, but one thing I find significant about that is when you go to the book of Revelation and you get the description of the New Jerusalem, it appears that it's cubed in shape, which would make perfect sense if this is a replica of what's represented there. But remember that this this big piece, now one of the interesting things is if the walls were seven and a half foot tall and this was 15 foot tall, that means it was twice as high as the walls. So while you couldn't see in, most people aren't able to see over seven and a half feet if you stood right by it, you could see that this top of the structure could be seen from outside because it was twice the height of the outer walls. But you couldn't see inside. So remember, the average Israelite never saw inside of here or inside of here because it was completely covered with the coverings. Now, I've already mentioned that this was called a veil or the tabernacle. That would have been the ceiling. So this is what you'd have seen if you were looking up. Hard question, young people. There were three other coverings on that tabernacle tent, the big tent. Do you know what they were made of? Yes, sir. Yeah, but a specific kind of animal. Uh, okay. So next to the veil, you had the rough woven goat skin. And then... Outwardly called badger, may have been seal from the Mediterranean or wherever, because this would have provided very practically a waterproof covering for the whole tent. And then there's one more. Anybody know? There was a ram skins that were dyed red. So you had the beautiful veil inside. You had the rough goat hide outside. You had the ram skin dyed red, and then the badger or the seal skin covering on the outside. A couple of things about that. One of the interesting things is when you read about the materials that were used for the tabernacle is that it was not just men who did stuff, but it was women who did stuff. It was women who wove the goat hair for the big covering. It was a big covering. It actually came all the way over outside and stretched over the whole top and everything. Now, I don't know, and, you know, I know it's look, don't touch, but the hair on the goat is pretty coarse. Imagine those women back then weaving those goat hair coverings for the tabernacle. And yet, what they were doing, something that they were doing that was connected with the glory of God. 
And so whenever you realize that what you do is under the Lord, if it's connected with God's glory, it elevates your thinking. No task is too menial. Nothing is too small if it helps in any way to promote or enhance the glory of God. I mean, they could have just thought, this is the stupidest job I've ever had, weaving all these dumb goat hair skins together, you know. My knuckles are bare, you know, and I need a new needle or sewing machine or whatever. But if you could get hold of the fact that what you were doing had to do with God's glory, pretty phenomenal. The other interesting thing to me is, and this is, this is where you kind of, you know, you kind of put your thinking cap on. The most beautiful part of it in that sense was on the inside. And nobody could see that except the priests who went in here and the high priest here. The drabest coloring, the dullest coloring, is what covered the outside. So you can imagine that somebody looking and sees this tent, even if they didn't come inside the structure, they saw the top of it and they thought, man, look at that old dull drab. There's no real beauty in that thing, except all on the inside is pure gold. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he didn't walk around with a spotlight shining on him. He didn't have a halo around his head. The prophet Isaiah said there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. He, did, he looked like a normal person, basically. But inside, pure gold, you see. And so there was nothing appealing or attracting to the natural eye from the outside. The average Israelite would have had to taken by faith what the beauty was on the inside. And so with us, when we see the Lord Jesus, he wasn't a man that in that sense was attractive to the natural eye, still isn't. But when you realize the beauty of the Son of God, that his attraction is altogether something different on the inside, you see. So that's just one thing I wanted to point out about those particular coverings. Now, when we uh, come back to the tabernacle... And we thought about the the approach to the tabernacle, the gate. One thing God was picky about, not only the design of the furniture and the design of the house that he would live in, but God had a color scheme. And the color scheme was always the same. So it's, in a sense, four colors. Now, this is just a representation. We don't know if that's exactly what it looked like, but we do know what the colors were. It was always blue. Well, let me ask the young people. Do you know, Luca? Blue, purple, red. Yes, blue, purple, red in that order. And one more. White. White, the fine white linen. Always blue, purple, and red, fine twined linen. Blue, purple, and red, fine white. Blue, purple, red, fine white. And, of course, blue, purple, red, and white linen. One other place where that's seen here, you got to look around to observe and tell me if you see where it's at. Two other places, actually. Yes. 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 But what's the difference here? There's blue, purple, and red, and white, and gold. The scripture says they beat gold into fine, you know, like wire, and it was woven in between. Now, this, I think of all the pieces that Sylvia did, this to me would have been one of the most difficult 
to weave all of this together like she did. But um, that's interesting. I'll come back to that in a minute. There's one other place where you see it. Yes. Yes, bells. And these were a certain kind of fruit. Pomegranates. Yes. Blue, uh, purple, and red. So that is replicated throughout the whole uh, tabernacle in, in the colors that are used where, where anything has colors, the blue, the purple, and the red. Now, the golden bells. Now, you know, one question I always get. Anybody guess if there's one question I always get about the tabernacle? You, you have, you know? No, but it's connected with the bells. It's the rope trick. Anybody ever hear of the rope trick? You heard of the rope trick, yes. Well, the question goes like this. Um, they said that they tied a rope onto the legs of the high priest so that when he went into the Holy of Holies on the day of Yom Kippur, day of atonement, if he died, nobody else was going to go in there so they could pull him out. And in the way they'd know he died is if they didn't hear the bells tinkling, you see. Well, part of the problem with that is, as we may see in one of the presentations, that when the high priest went into there, he didn't have on these bells. He took off the garments of glory and beauty, and he only had on the white robe. And the other thing is, if he dies while he's in there doing that, you better think of something else to do because things weren't going to go well if God didn't accept the sacrifice. But anyway, when we think about these color schemes, um, there are a lot of things that they could suggest to us, but I'd like us to think in another way of what they might suggest to us as we look back on the tabernacle and we're able with hindsight to see some of those things. Hard question, young people. Can you tell me what purple represents in the Bible? Is you trying to raise your hand? Royalty, yes. Royal things, yes. Purple royalty. Yes, color of uh, the king's robes and things like that. Can you tell me what the scarlet or the red represents? Blood, yes. Sacrifice, yes. In that sense. Mm -hmm. How about blue? Mm, God's always a good answer. Jesus is a good answer, yes. Well, water could be an answer, but I'm thinking of something else. Oh, did I hear heaven? Yes, or the or the, the heavenlies, right? Yes. Okay, so we've got blue, purple, scarlet, and we already established that the fine white linen. So I'm going to now say something that I like to say. Whenever I say something that the Bible doesn't specifically say, I want you to know that I'm telling you something the Bible doesn't specifically say, okay? But be that as it may, this is not anything contrary to what the Bible says. It just doesn't specifically say this. You're not going to turn chapter and verse and read what I'm about to say. But when we come to realize that everything in this tabernacle in one way or another spoke of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then when we put our thinking caps on a little bit, we think about the work of Christ, the person of Christ, and we realize that, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, 
Luke, and John, they all present the Lord Jesus Christ in various ways. Now, they're telling the same story, but just like any four people looking at one, one event, they don't all necessarily communicate it in exactly the same way. If they all said the same exact thing word for word, we'd wonder if they, you know, it was real, real or not. But they, they all do present ultimately this portrait of Christ, but they do it in various ways. Now, you young people, I may have to go beyond 15 on this one. I don't know if you're going to get this or not, but sometimes when we talk about the Gospel of Matthew, um, we say that Matthew presents Jesus Christ as anybody. King, yes. He traces his genealogy from the beginning. Jesus Christ as the king. Mark presents Jesus Christ as the servant. Yes, servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for the many. Luke presents him as the man, the perfect man. Yes, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And John presents him as the, the Son of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So when we think about that, in a sense, this purple, which was a royal color, reminds us of Matthew's gospel, the king. The scarlet, the ransom, the servant, Mark, the blue, John, who takes us back into the heavenlies, and the white, Luke, the perfect man, Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, it's interesting, isn't it? If you know anything about primary colors, do you know how we get purple? Yes. Exactly, by mixing blue and red. Put those two together and you get purple. And so isn't it interesting that the entrance to the tabernacle, the gate, the way in, has a has an interesting parallel, we might say at the least, to the entrance into who Christ is, which is presented by the four Gospels. At least it's interesting to think of it that way. All these things did speak of Christ. So now remember, we're coming in. Uh, through the gate, and the first thing we meet is the altar. And maybe you brought a pigeon or a dove, or maybe you had to bring a lamb or a bull, whatever it was. Now, what you didn't do was, you didn't come to the priest and say, Now, look, I want you to know this is a very expensive sheep, which it probably was. And it cost me a lot, and so I want you to take good care of it. By the way, I nicknamed this one the Dalai Lama. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, stick to the day job. Uh, you didn't come to the priest and say, look, I, I, I've raised this thing, and what I want you to do is I'm going to present this to God, so take it and find it a nice pasture somewhere where we're going to have a good home. Let's look, for instance, at back at the book of Leviticus for just a moment. Leviticus chapter 4 where it talks about a sin offering. Leviticus chapter 4. I won't read it in its entirety, but I will read some of the things that it says. So in Leviticus chapter 4, you brought the sin offering. You'll see it repeated there time and time again. 
Verse 27, if any one of the common people sin through ignorance while he doeth that which is against the commandments of the Lord, concerning things which he ought not to be done, he'd be guilty, or if his sin which he sin comes to knowledge, he'll bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a female without blemish for his sin which he sin. He lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest will take of the blood thereof with his finger, put it upon the horns of the altar, pour it out the blood thereof at the bottom of the altar, and then do various things, as it says in verse 31. But notice at the end, it says, It is a sweet savor unto the Lord. The priest shall make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. And if he bring a lamb, and so on, and so on. So he couldn't just say, look, this is a really fine sheep, really good goat. I want you to take him out there and, you know, let him live a nice life and live out the rest of their days here on the planet. No. If he sinned, he brought his offering. Never try this at home. <laughs> he laid his hand upon the offering. They took a pail of some form, slit the animal's throat, caught the blood, and then the priest went and performed the various things he was to do, blood on the horns of the altar, pour the rest at the base, and so on. I'm going to tell you, I don't know if you've ever butchered an animal. I have. And not to get too gruesome, but, but I remember years ago when I was in South Carolina as a young, young boy, teenager, and I went to, uh, to a farm where, that was by there, and they were going to kill some pigs, you know, to do a barbecue or whatever. I always thought it was kind of cruel because I thought, man, if you're going to kill a pig, just shoot it, you know. Boom, done. But that isn't the way they did it. Take the knife and put it in the juggler vein and let it run around till it bled out. I mean, you guys know me. You know I'm a hunter. I shoot stuff and kill stuff and, you know. But still, I thought that was, I thought that was cruel. You know, why not just shoot the thing, put it out of its minutes? The goal of a hunter is to get a clean, quick, ethical kill, you know. If there is such a thing. But anyway, I'm just saying this was something that was, in a sense, it was gruesome. I mean, why not just let that beautiful animal live? Wouldn't it be enough if I just came and said, I'm sorry? It wasn't enough to say you were sorry. An animal had to die. And its blood had to be taken and applied in the various ways that the priest would have done it. And you learned something. You learned a couple of things. You learned that sin was a very costly thing. It cost something. And maybe you were poor and you could only afford to bring a dove for certain sacrifices. But even in that, it cost something. Sin is a costly thing. And sin is such a costly thing that it took the death of God's Son Jesus Christ, to provide a means where why we could be forgiven. I mean, it didn't cost me anything. You know, I'm not even like that farmer who brought a goat or a sheep. I, I, nothing in my hands I bring. 
Simply to thy cross I cling. But I'll tell you, we sometimes talk about salvation, and it is free to us, but it wasn't cheap. It cost the very life of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to die that cruel death that he died on Calvary's cross. And what he did there, he did for you, and he did for me, because the blood of these animals could never ultimately take away sin. One other thing that's interesting is I read that passage in Leviticus. It seems to say to me, as I read it, that the offerer himself was to lay his hand. Now, there's some sacrifices that the priest did everything. But it seems in this particular sin offering that the priest laid his, I mean, that the offerer came. So I brought the the animal, and I laid my hand on the head of that animal. And I then killed that animal slayed that animal. And you see, when the priest, when the, when the person laid his hand, hand on that animal, he was, in a sense, identifying himself with that animal to say, you know, this animal didn't do anything wrong. I'm the one that sinned. But in a sense, I'm transferring my sin symbolically to this animal. The animal didn't do anything wrong. And you think about it, because in salvation we come, don't we? And in a sense, by faith, we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who did no sin. But it's almost like us placing our hands on him and saying, he didn't deserve to die. I deserve to die. But he died, and he took my place. And so how significant it was, even at that level, for these offers to come and bring those animals and uh, and think then of the Lamb of God. You know, one of the most common titles of Jesus Christ, which is interesting, even in the book of Revelation, very common title of the Lord is, is the Lamb of God. It seems to always be a reminder that he came as a lamb, not to be a gentle lamb, you know, gentle shepherd and all that kind of a thing, but he came to die primary purpose in coming was to be a sacrificial lamb to provide the payment for the penalty of our sins. So that was a, a very significant thing. And then while we're thinking about it, let's think a little bit again about the altar. It's interesting that the, the very word altar uh, means to slay or to butcher. So this was a place of death. Some of us were talking this morning about the fact that animals have a very keen sense about them. Um, we used to have a dog named Charlie, um, Charlie the Wonder Dog. Wonder I didn't kill him, but anyway. <laughs> Charlie the ten dollar beagle. And and one thing was funny about Charlie when we'd take him to Jacksonville. Back then we had minivan, and we put him in the back, you know, of the minivan. And as soon as we would pull out of the driveway, basically, Charlie did what he did most of his life. He went to sleep. So it was about, you know, a couple-hour drive to Jacksonville. And it was the weirdest thing. When we turned down the road that went to my mother-in-law and father-in-law's house, all of a sudden Charlie woke up and started, you know, barking and whining and stuff like that. He slept the whole time. I don't know how he knew we were getting close to the house, you know, whether his bladder was telling him or what. But anyway, um, uh, animals have a very keen sense of things. And it just seems to me that when these animals would approach this place of death, 
They knew. They could sense it. They could smell it. And so there's a, there's a psalm that says, bind the sacrifice. Battery going dead? Bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. And we were talking a little bit earlier, some of us, about the fact that one of the reasons the Bible seems to say that, well, let's look at it in Hebrews chapter 10, when it draws a comparison with what Jesus Christ came to do. The book of Hebrews will remind us that the blood of bulls and goats ultimately could not take away sin. And in Hebrews chapter 10, speaking of Christ, it says twice, verse 6, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither had his pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. You see, it may sound kind of silly in one sense, but sometimes these animals probably came kicking and, and bleeding and everything else. One thing we know for certain, no animal ever came and climbed up on that altar on its own and killed itself. They had to be tied and bound. Somebody had to take their life. When Christ came, it says twice of him, twice of him there, he came, I came to do thy will, O God. He faced the cross, and he went to the cross willingly. And that's one of the huge differences between the animal sacrifices and the, and what Jesus Christ did, who willingly went to the cross, knowing more than anybody ever could what it would entail and what it would involve for him to die that death. And he did it willingly. And he did it because of you and me. So when we think of the altar... Um, it, it suggests a number of things. Man's approach was not how you got to God. It was God who designed it. It may not have seemed like the most pleasant thing. <clears throat> it may not have seemed like the most aesthetically appealing thing. It may have been a little rough to the senses. But God was communicating a message. You're going to come. You're going to come that way. God's way, not man's way. And then thinking of this place of suffering and, and death and everything else, it, how do we know that this speaks of the work of Christ? Turn to one passage in the book of Ephesians, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 5. <coughs> excuse me, chapter 5 of Ephesians. It says in verse 2, Walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and given himself to us for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Those sacrifices that rose and ascended up. You see, there's some places where the burnt offering is called the ascending offering. It rose up. And in the language of Scripture, God smelled it as a sweet aroma to him. Now, while it may have been a place of, that smelled of death, what the scripture is communicating, 
that this was something that was pleasing to God. It wasn't that God took some sort of ghoulish pleasure in killing animals. It was what it represented as a sweet aroma that ascended to God. There's another aspect to it that I want to just mention briefly of the altar, and that is this ascending or burnt offering that, that rose up to God. Not all the offerings that were done were done strictly for sin offerings. There's, and I think Rex may be going to bring in some of these things, but um, that's okay. I'm sure he'll bring it in different and probably much better than I could. But um, anyway, there were different offerings for different things. But that ascending offering that rose up to God, while nobody else might have liked it, it was something that was special to him. And it kind of reminds me of worship. There are things in worship that are not intended for our pleasure. I think that is a misconception that a lot of people have. It isn't that God wants us to feel horrible when we come to the meeting of the church or something. It's just that there are some things, as we'll see when we get to the ministry and service of God, they were for God. And they rose up to him. And it was what he valued. So in a sense, the altar... Uh, the ascending offering reminds us of our worship to God. That that was a primary thing, that it came first. There's one other thing that the altar reminds me of. And I want to turn to Romans in chapter 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I want to tell you that this is a profound passage to me. So most of you know my background, how I got saved, and, you know, three-time convicted felon, prison sentence, jail, drug abuse, the whole deal. And God saved me. And in the words of an evangelist that's with the Lord now that I used to know, I would say like he used to say, I got saved real good. (laughs) And God dramatically changed my life. I couldn't explain it at first. I was dumb as a brick when it came to spiritual things. I wasn't raised in a Christian home or any of that. And I didn't know what, how to even put it in the right terms. I just knew that something had happened to me, and that God had delivered me, and my life was never going to be the same. I had no idea what it would be. But I confess to you that for a few months, several months, there were some things I still struggled with. I had had numerous addictions, and there were things that... God delivered me from automatically. There were just some other things that I struggled with. At some point, several months later, I came across this passage in Romans chapter 12. And in my very limited way of understanding it, it just had a profound impact on me. Because I said right there, Lord, I know I'm a believer, but I want to come now and I want to dedicate my life to you. As best as I can, I want to give myself as a living sacrifice to you. I wish I could tell you that for all these 40 plus years that it's been 100% the whole time, but I'd be, I'd be lying if I did. But I want to tell you that that made a profound impact in my experience of Christ at that time. There were just areas in my life that I really hadn't fully yielded to the Lord. And so in Romans chapter 12, we read these words. I beseech you, brethren, 
Therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, one of the amazing things, if you've studied Romans, is that in every section of the book of Romans, major sections of the book of Romans, there is mention of the body. And as you know, Romans 1 begins by talking about how human beings have degraded and defiled their bodies, how they dishonor God with their bodies what they do and then the beauty of God's salvation comes in and people who once defiled their bodies and dishonored God with what they did with their bodies get saved and set apart unto Christ to the point where they can now come with these new bodies and offer their bodies to God as a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable unto God. And you see, while these sacrifices in the Old Testament were killed on the altar, God's not asking you to die for Christ. He's asking you to live for Him. We come now as a living sacrifice. And we present the only things we have that can be a vehicle for God to use on this planet Earth. And that is our bodies and our minds, which we find in verse 2. And one of the interesting things is, is that the translators, if they get into the the nitty-gritty of this verse, they, they struggle a little bit with that last phrase, your reasonable service. And while it is reasonable in the sense we think reasonable, it actually is a word that is connected with priestly ministry. You could do it justice almost by saying this is your true priestly worship to come and offer your body as a living sacrifice. What a privilege it is. And so when we think of this altar and we draw near to the altar and we think that this was a place of death and a place where blood was shed and a place where God accepted the offering of the offerer, And we find that in Ephesians 2, ultimately it links us to Christ and what he's done. We draw near to Christ. We see what Jesus Christ did there on the cross for us. And we now are called to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, our true spiritual worship. Draw near and see the Savior die and realize what he did there for you and what he did there for me. So I'm reminded of that when we think of the altar. There's one last thing, and I'll close with this, when I think of the altar. And this takes us to the history of the nation of Israel. You remember that they disobeyed God, and I'm condensing this quite a bit. When they finally disobeyed God and God sent them off into a foreign land in the captivity and God graciously put out an appeal to them, almost like the appeal to the tabernacle. He did it through a Gentile king. If there's any of you willing to go back and rebuild, and not all of them did, but a group of them began to go back in several phases. 
And what's interesting to me is when you come to the book of Ezra, it says that the first thing that they did when they got back to the land, they didn't establish their armies. They didn't build their own houses. The way it's presented, the first thing they did was they built the altar. It was in a sense like they were saying, if this is going to happen, we're going to be dependent on what God can do. We're going to give God his due first before we ever take care of our own stuff. They built the altar and they began to offer sacrifices to God. What dedication that was. So it reminds us the altar too of dedication to the Lord. And so with that thought, we're going to close for now. And then uh, should we give thanks for the food now? Yes, okay. By faith, not by sight. (laughs) Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you take these somewhat stumbling thoughts and so much material and help us to remember that great motivating influence in the life of Paul. The Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. Oh, Lord, that says so much. We know on the one hand we can never love you enough, never love you like we should. But we thank you that your love for us never gets any more and it never gets any less because it's not based on our performance. It's based on what Jesus Christ did. We thank you for that constant nature of your love for us based on the death of your son. We pray that if there's any in this room or listening to this or watching it by any media that's available that don't know Christ as Savior, that at this very time they take that first initial step, come to that sacrifice of Jesus Christ and realize what he did, he did for them, that they might believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Now we give you thanks for this food. We think of an amazing thing that we can even eat and drink to the very glory of God. Thank you for all that have worked and helped and prepared. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen.